0: The reading this morning is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to 26. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head. While the fool walks in darkness but i came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both then i thought in my heart the fate of the fool will overtake me also what then do i gain by being wise i said in my heart this too is meaningless for the wise man like the fool will not be remembered in days to come Both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And yet who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get? for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun. All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment. To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind.
1: Let me pray as we begin. Our great God and Father, thank you for your wisdom, wisdom from outside of this world, wisdom that we have in the scriptures and how we need it to understand how to live in this wonderful and yet broken world. Teach us again, we pray this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. A little while back, uh, pre-lockdown, I was uh, sent an article, it's not my current common reading, but uh, sent an article from Psychology Today magazine. And it was a very honest piece by uh, a woman called Jen Kim. She wrote this. At this stage of my life in my early 30s, I didn't expect to be on the hunt for a job again. I've spent the last decade hopping from job to job in the San Francisco Bay Area, each time optimistic that the latest company will be... The one. The one that I want to commit to. The one that will make me truly happy. But somewhere between my first hour on the job and third year there, I begin to suspect that ultimately it just won't work out. I guess many of us have found what Jen Kim found, that uh, while there's much that we enjoy about our jobs, they can never give a sense of um, completion, completion? completion or fulfillment. We have moments of triumph, elation even, at work. But then, oh, the next day, the next week, quarter rolls around, the next year rolls around, and it's just a familiar sort of pattern. Well, Jen Kim would have found a a, a confidant in the teacher of Ecclesiastes because he will tell us again today that all life is hevel. This lovely little Hebrew word, hevel, a breath. It gets translated in uh, the NIV as uh, meaningless, but Uh, That doesn't always make best sense of it. Fleeting, elusive, frustration, like a breath. (sighs) Comes and it goes and you can't pin it down. Life is like that. And um, we said in one sense that for the first half of the book, the simple formula that he's trying to press upon us is that the labors of this world, the toil of this life, well, when you add death to them, it renders them all pretty frustrating fleeting. So the question over the whole book is chapter one and verse three. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil at under the sun? When you've walked on this earth, have you left footprints? or Have you left nothing? What is your legacy? Uh, I mean, 60, 70, 80, whatever, however many years it is, what have you given? What's left? What lasts? Well, last time he looked at um, the pursuit of wisdom. Ah, if I'm wise and bequeath great wisdom to the next generation, will that last? No, that won't give a sense of satisfaction or meaning. What about pleasure, he said? Just a pursuit of hedonism, seize the day as it were. Will will that give meaning to life? No, he says both of them are in this phrase which crops up recurrently in the first half of the book, are chasing the wind. They're just chasing the wind. Chapter 2, verse 11, at the end of the section we looked at last time. Now, he continues on his search. It's all really one story, a a personal testimony from chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of our reading today, chapter 2, verse 26. We've cut it in half. But today, he's going to focus upon work. Before then, wisdom. Again, he'll return to wisdom. But we're going to ask these two questions more briefly. What's the point of wisdom when you die like a fool? And then a bit more time on, what's the point of working when your legacy will be squandered? And then we'll look at a better way, an alternative, so it's not too depressing. But those two questions then, and here's the first. Uh, What's the point of wisdom when you die like a fool? Chapter two, verses 12 to 16. So chapter two and verse 12. Uh, Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom. And also madness and folly. Here are two alternatives. On the one hand, wisdom, and on the other hand, there's a combination term: madness and folly, stupid folly, inane madness. However you want to translate it. What about there's there's an option? I've returned to consider these. Now, of course, he has looked at these two before. Chapter one and verse seventeen. You get this parallel of wisdom and madness and folly. And you think we've, you've looked at these already, and they didn't work for you. And he's but he's a bit like a man, he's trying to find the purpose of life, the meaning of life. And he's a bit like a man who's who's lost his keys and, well, they're in the drawer, aren't they? No, they're not in that drawer. And then he goes and searches numerous other places and the last coat he was wearing. But then he he returns to the drawer. Are you sure they're not in the drawer? So he he returns to wisdom. Surely is wisdom not a good thing? Better than madness and folly? And yes, it is. It really is. So verse 12, verse 13, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. Oh, it's much better to walk with the lights on than walk with the lights turned off and you stumble. Wisdom is better than foolishness. It is a better way of living. So in my cursory look through the book, wisdom does a whole number of things. It'll preserve your life. Chapter seven, it'll protect you, chapter seven. It'll give you strength, chapter seven, verse 19. It'll help you evaluate your experiences sensibly, chapter seven, verse 23. Wisdom will give you joy, chapter eight, verse one. It'll save a city from invasion, 915. It's better than strength, brute strength, 916. It'll give you success in life, chapter 10, verse 10. In other words, the teacher says, wisdom's really good. Don't misunderstand me. It's far better to go through this life wisely than foolishly. That's why this word hevel doesn't always, meaningless isn't always the best uh, translation of it because there is more meaning in living wisely. But, second half of verse 14. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes both. The wise and the fool, they both die. And that's frustrating. Verse 15, I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. Well, what then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is frustrating, fleeting, impossible to grasp, meaningless. Meaningless. Verse sixteen: For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten, like the fool. The wise person too must die. Oh, do you remember? Just it was just a few weeks ago on um, Heart Island. Uh, just off Manhattan uh, in New York City, uh, pictures emerged of long trenches being dug on Hart Island, um, traditionally a place where uh, unknown paupers are buried. But these long trenches being dug because uh, the city couldn't cope with just the volume of those dying. And so it leaked out that, uh, well, everyone was just going to be chucked. Uh, into these graves, the same grave, and then later, when there was a bit more time and capacity to, to sort things out, they'd be pulled out and, uh, and reburied. And this caused absolute outrage. You can't just chuck everyone in together. That's horrible. Now, I think, I think as if I understand rightly, it was a mistake. That was never the intention. It was still for unclaimed bodies, just the volume of them was so high, they needed somewhere for them to go. But the outrage that people felt, you can't just throw everyone into the same pit. That's not right. And the teacher is saying, but that is what happens. Are some people, their legacy lasts a little bit longer, but verse 16, not long, not long remembered. In the end, Everyone gets thrown into the same box marked dead and forgotten. Look, I know there's this tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people that do get remembered. And there's those who uh, do their pilgrimage to the grave of Karl Marx or whatever it may be. But that's tiny. He's talking generally. People are not remembered. So what if you live a wise life or a foolish one? One writer puts it, if one fate comes to all and that fate is extinction, it robs every person of their dignity and every project of its point. What's the point of wisdom when you die like a fool does, says the teacher. Well, let's ask a second question uh, or let's look at the second question the teacher raises. Uh, What's the point of working when your legacy is squandered? Let's cheer ourselves up. Chapter two, verse 17. So I, oops. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. Oh. I think you could easily marshal a case that Ecclesiastes, it's certainly the most honest of books. In the Bible, would we say that? Honest about frustration, realistic about how annoying life can be at times. Of course, the frustration here, verse 19, who knows whether the one who comes after me will be wise or foolish. Yet they'll have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who's not told for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. Of course, this is a well-known phenomenon in families. It's a much uh, quoted statistic that... um, 70% of wealthy families lose the wealth by the second generation, 90% by the third generation. So lots of the super rich will now leave their money, will not leave their money to lots of kids, uh, lots of money to their kids. So the the Warren Buffett adage, I intend to leave my children enough money that they feel they could do anything, but not so much that they could do nothing. Apparently he's going to leave his three kids $2 billion each, which... I could stretch for my lifetime and do nothing. I reckon I could eke out two billion. But anyway, uh, that's a different uh, issue. But you can't control what your kids do with money that you leave to them. And so, of course, some of the super rich now, they're saying, no, we give it all to charity. So to his great credit, someone like Warren Buffett, along with uh, many of the the, the giving pledge, is giving 90% of his wealth away to charities. But even then... Who knows if it'll be administered, administered wisely? I mean, the Gates Foundation, what a phenomenon. What a great gift to humanity. But when its founders leave, who can guarantee that within a generation or two, it'll still be wisely administered, that the money will still be being spent on projects that they would have cared about? And that's what the teacher is saying, verse 19. Who knows? whether a wise or foolish person will take control of everything I've worked for. It's not just who the money goes to that causes frustration. Verse 22 and three. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. What reward do you get for the long hours the frustrations of work. Well, says the teacher, you may get pain. You may get sleepless nights tossing and turning on your bed. And yet in the 21st century, how common this is. More and more people are like Jen Kim, who I quoted at the beginning, thinking that their work will satisfy them. That finding the right job is the one. But it's never true. There was a striking article in um, The Atlantic Magazine uh, a little while back. It revealed that, uh, it based on research in the States, but uh, revealed that uh, affluent, wealthy, university educated are now working longer hours than ever. In fact, the shock in the report was in the 1980s, the highest earning men, to be fair, the highest earning men in the, in the year 1980 were working considerably fewer hours than those on middle and lower incomes. And in one sense, that's just true of the whole of history. The wealthiest have had uh, some pleasure and had idle time and they've gone hunting and whatever it may be. Um, and others have worked harder. But now... Really, since 2005, it's been turning, and now it's the other way around. So the highest earners are working the longest hours. They do longer hours than middle, low earners. They have less leisure time. They're just always in the office. So the richest 10 earners have the longest working week in the US, and it's the same in the UK, Striking quote from the article. The best educated and highest earners who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that Christians attend church on a Sunday. It's where they feel they're most themselves. I thought that was a striking quote. The best educated and highest earners, they can choose whatever they want. They've chosen the office. That's where they're gonna invest their lives because just as Christians do with church, that's where they feel most themselves. Work is the center of their identity. But of course, what happens if you fail? What happens if you're fired? What happens when you retire? What happens more prosaically like Jen Kim? You just think, this job's not doing it for me. I need a better one. I haven't found the one. The teacher woke up one day and said, what am I working for? What's the point? All that I'm investing here, why? What do I gain? Uh, Death mocks everything I'm going to achieve. Now, look, you might find him a bit gloomy. You might find these last couple of weeks a bit gloomy. But in one sense, he is just raging against death and the fact that death renders all our achievements uh, a waste. And he wants us, he's just being honest there. You and I, we may not. We may simply normalize death. It seems to me there's a lot of that going on at the moment. It's a bit odd, isn't it, if you if you, if you watch the news, oh, what's the COVID death rate today? Oh, oh 140, oh, it's quite good. It's not bad, is it? Uh, things still going down. And sort of how many have died? These stats become bizarrely normalized. Here the teacher is saying, no, 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 no. Now everyone's an individual. what's, What's their life been worth? What have they achieved? He rages against death. What's the point of working when your legacy is squandered? He says. I need more than that. He says. And there is. So finally, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26 is the first ray of sunshine really breaks through into the book. And seven times we'll get advice like this repeated. It sort of climaxes in in chapter 11, verse 9. There's a better way of living. Or we can put it in these terms, or enjoy the gifts of God. Verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Now, I say or because this is an alternative. The teacher is not saying, he's not saying, well, life's an enigma, isn't it? You can't find contentment in wisdom, in, in pleasure, in your work, so phew, stuff it. Nothing better to do than to uh, eat and drink and have a good time. He's not saying that. He's already said in chapter 2, 1 to 11 that that doesn't work. Now, here is an alternative vision for life in this world. God breaks in all of a sudden three times. He's, God has been absent from the whole of chapter two. God breaks in now. And what essentially you have here in these verses, chapter 2, 24 to 26, it's two ways to live. There are two ways you can choose to go. So do you see them? Um, verse 26, the sinner accumulates for themselves. To the sinner, God gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth for themselves. Okay, they'll hand it over to the one who pleases God. So on the one hand, you've got the sinner who accumulates for themselves, wisdom for themselves, pleasure for themselves, they work for themselves. On the other hand, you have the God-pleaser who finds satisfaction. The way it gets translated slightly hides the fact Four times in the Hebrew, you get a little word. It's just the simplest way of translating it is good, actually. But verse 24, a person could do nothing better. Verse 24, satisfaction. Verse 25, pleases God. Verse 26, pleases God. It's the same word every time. Good is the basic translation. Or in other words, the one who pleases God is the one who is satisfied in him. That's the better way. The one who is satisfied with God pleases God. That's the better way. That's what the writer is saying. So sinners accumulate everything for themselves but lose it all. God pleases. Those who are satisfied with God, they please him. That's a far better way that affects how we work dramatically. Let me try and explain it like this. Uh, in the midst of time, I've done various uh, part-time jobs. Uh, Painter-decorator was uh, the way of earning money for a while. So particularly um, not long after university, uh, which is before graduation, spent that summer doing a lot of painter, de- painter decorating sort of stuff. And uh, I vividly remember uh, one house, decorating pretty much the whole house, painting, just painting the whole house. It was for a peer in terms of age. He was a student, but he owned this house, very unusual. Uh, parents had bought it for him. And he was idle, arrogant, unpleasant. So every day I'd go in and paint a room and paint a different room and then go back and second coat it, et uh, He had emerged from his bed in a sloth-like state at some point and just mock me. He was wealthy and I was his staff. I was his servant, as it were, employed. We'd done very similar courses, but he just, anyway. I've got to be honest with you yeah, yeah I painted the house and it was a good bit of money, but it wasn't worth it because it was just so frustrating just working for an unpleasant character. By contrast, rolled on a couple of years, uh, married. And uh, where uh, Kerry and I were going to church uh, at the time, not this church, but um, they wanted to buy a house, a new house for the curate. And and we made a financial contribution to that. They bought a new house and then there was a a working party to uh, paint the whole house and uh, get it ready for incoming uh, curate. And so I, I went and spent a few days painting the house and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Why the difference? On one hand, I was doing a job, and it paid money, but it was so frustrating. On the other hand, I was invested. I cared. I was doing something for the church, and I was doing something for the Lord, and I knew it had significance. Same job. You know, paint up, paint down. Very, very different how I felt Very, very different, actually, in their outcomes. See, work can be merely to accumulate for yourself. That is meaningless, fleeting, frustrating. Oh, I've left something for the kids. Who knows if they'll make good sense of it. Oh, I've given money to charity. Will it be administered wisely? Accumulating for yourself, meaningless. But... Work can be enjoyed as God's gift. Investing for him, knowing that he assesses how we work and we look forward to his reward. That's very different, or as Jesus would put it. Don't store up treasures on earth where moths can eat it and thieves can steal it. Store up treasure in heaven Because as the teacher wants to impress upon us, in the end, death mocks all our achievements. Every world view to be credible has to come to terms with death. And here the teacher gives a hint that Jesus expands upon. That when you give your life in God's service, knowing him, satisfied in him, working for him, It lasts; it lasts into eternity, which means all your work, all your labours, have enormous meaning to them. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, thank you for the relentless questioning of the teacher. Not always comfortable but forcing us to come to terms with reality of this world. And so, Father, would we be those who don't accumulate for ourselves, but find satisfaction in you and therefore please you by giving our lives in your service? Would we know that better way, which secures for us a reward in heaven and satisfaction purpose in our labors here and now? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.